I recognize that my political career has also been made possible by other trailblazers, and I really feel that people of color can also uh, make it easier for others to follow by doing the best job they can. Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. You can also find us in Boston Globe Opinion and on Twitter, at PolicyCast. Today, we're joined by Ambassador Gary Locke, who has previously served as the United States Ambassador to the People's Republic of China, as well as U.S. Secretary of Commerce and Governor of the State of Washington. He's currently at HKS as a visiting fellow at the Harvard Institute of Politics. Ambassador Locke, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you, Matt. So uh, I want to start off with your time as ambassador. Now, you were the first ever Chinese-American to become ambassador to China. What do you think the most important role of an ambassador is, especially in the context of two superpowers? Well, the U.S.-China relationship is perhaps the most important two-country bilateral country relationship in the world today. And uh, we are so intertwined economically, uh, but also in terms of trying to uh, halt the proliferation of nuclear weapons, uh, to scientific research, and of course uh, to um, uh, fighting global terrorism. And uh, there's a lot of cooperation today between our two countries, and our countries are closer together today than they were some more than 40 years ago when President Nixon first visited China. Obviously there are major differences in terms of our stances on human rights, intellectual property protection, rule of law, cybersecurity, and of course just fundamentally different forms of government, different history and culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the U.S. ambassador is really to represent the viewpoint and the interests of America, to watch out for U.S. citizens that might be there, whether as tourists or students or business people, uh, to really also advancing the U.S.-China relationship and advancing uh, our positions to the government, uh, but also uh, educating the Chinese people to what America is all about. Mm-hmm. And uh, our time there as a family was just incredible, uh, very um, um, informative, and, and just a real educational uh, experience for the kids. Uh, my father uh, passed away just before I became ambassador, and he was very proud when President Obama swore me in as U.S. Commerce Secretary. I think he would have been even more proud to see his son returning to his homeland as the representative of the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. Now, I... Uh as ambassador, you were actually pretty popular among Chinese citizens, uh, in no small part because you had what might be best described as a low-key demeanor. You carry your own bags or go buy a cup of coffee on your own, which was a contrast with the Chinese leadership. I'm curious, obviously that to some extent reflects just your personality, um, but I'm curious if you made a conscious effort at all to do that in order to kind of represent what I think at our best moments is the American ideal of, of um, equality among, among peoples. Well, we became famous uh, for being very casual, laid back, and doing things on our own even before we went to China. Uh, there was a picture of uh, me uh, taken by someone unbeknownst to me while we were at the airport on our way to China. I was at a Starbucks with my daughter, 11-year-old daughter, who, well, now 11 years old, and uh, at that time, um, uh, seven or eight years old, mm-hmm. and I had a backpack on, my Nike backpack, and, and the picture was taken from behind, and it went viral. 
and so the Chinese people and the Chinese press were alerted to our arrival even before we got there because we didn't tell the Chinese press when we were coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they figured it out from that picture, uh, what flight it would had to have been. And they were waiting for us, and they saw us coming down the escalator carrying our own luggage and uh, all of our stuff at, at midnight. Um, and that was completely unheard of before in China, where high government officials have entourages that you know get their coffee and um, uh, carry all of their luggage or briefcases, umbrellas, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we, our behavior is no different than any other person in America. I mean, that, that's how relaxed and casual and easygoing Americans are. We also have a U.S. government policy that you have to fly coach, and that was completely unheard of in China as well. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, I think we were uh, using soft diplomacy to, to inform the Chinese people of what American values, American lifestyle is all about. Mm-hmm. Was that something that you had planned on? No, uh, no. We, you didn't uh, plan on being we, uh, found we, out that you were yeah, flying. But. We, uh, we, if, we, like I said, we did not know that some person took a picture of us right. buying the Starbucks coffee from behind and don't know who that person was and that it went viral. Us flying coach is a U.S. government policy that applies to all American personnel in every country around the world. Mm-hmm. So we were just doing what is normal for uh, under American policy. And, you know, our family would go out and have dinner and go shopping and buy our own food and, uh, and you know, frequent the malls or go to the Great Wall. We were just trying to be like everyday people, mm-hmm. and uh, so not by design. It's just how we who we are. I, I imagine you, the Chinese people certainly uh, they get a lot of uh, American culture through movies, television, just just the way the rest of the world does. Um, so they're presumably familiar with that American lifestyle. Was it different that it was somebody in China uh, uh, operating at that level? That it was an actual American fish official? Yeah, I, yes, I think they were not uh, familiar with how everyday all Americans are, uh, whether you're a CEO of a major corporation or a government official. Uh, in China, government officials are treated almost like royalty and catered to and huge entourages that take care of their every need mm-hmm. uh, who live in special compounds uh, away from the general public. And to see, for the Chinese people to see us, our family out and about at a restaurant buying our own groceries, uh, going to Starbucks and things like that, or just taking a walk through the park was just completely um, new to them Mm -hmm. and uh, made them question uh, why their government officials were being uh, treated uh, so uh, lavishly. Mm -hmm. One thing that you did a lot of work on both as ambassador and also as commerce secretary was immigration. And uh, one of the vehicles for that was the EB-5 visa, which I'm going to get into in just a second. Um, But I'm curious about your personal family history. Now, um, back in 1882, there was passed the famous uh, Chinese Exclusion Act, which is probably one of the most significant examples of a ethnically focused immigration shutdown, essentially. Um, if that wasn't repealed till 1943, which I'm just guessing based on math, it m- might have had some impact on your family getting here. Uh, I'm curious if if it did, and uh, if so, how did that shape your views on immigration? Well, I very much believe that America is a land of immigrants. 
whether we're first generation or 10th generation, whether our ancestors came um, from Europe uh, uh, or from England on the Mayflower or came across a, as a, on a slave vessel or a boat from China. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are all immigrants, and our strength as a country is because of that diversity of people, cultures, ideas, religions, uh, and histories. And I think that's what makes America so great. So I, I get very, very um, worked up when I see people talking about uh, closing off our borders and almost denying uh, what we're all about. Um, and it's because of that diversity of, of people and, and cultures and ideas that makes us great that we are such an innovative society. And wave after wave of immigrants contributes uh, to the dynamism of America. Um, and so uh, when I was uh, both Commerce Secretary and, and especially as Ambassador, I really worked to try to make it easier for Chinese individuals to visit America either as business people to come buy Made in America products um, or to come as tourists. Uh, or as students, because I really felt that if they could also get a glimpse of America, uh, they would understand us, uh, increase their understanding of us, appreciate our diversity, our rule of law, our transparency, um, uh, and all of our and our f- principles of freedom and democracy, and perhaps take that back uh, to their native country, China, in this particular case, and perhaps whet their appetite uh, for reforms. Uh, that would uh, move their country forward. Mm-hmm. The EB-5 visa I mentioned before, this is generally a visa that's a lo- open for people who uh, want to invest significantly in the United States. Uh, I, something around 90% of those who receive those uh, those visas come from China, from mainland China. If those visas are going to that population in particular, is that putting any kind of strain on the American-Chinese relationship, especially given that China, with its recent economic tumult, um, is very keen to keep uh, that outflow of capital uh, or, or stop it in some way? Well, the EB-5 program uh, has been around for many uh, years, and actually many other countries have similar programs where they're trying to attract investment, job-creating investment from people around the world. Canada has had a very strong EB equivalent of an EB-5 program for many, many years, and up until recently, most EB-5 investors in the United States were f- not from China. It's only in the last few years that it has um, becomes a largely uh, investment from China. And the, the individuals have to invest anywhere from half a million dollars to a million dollars and must create at least 10 permanent jobs. Um, and if after so many years um, uh, th- those conditions have been met, uh, then that person and their family can receive a green card to become a permanent resident in the United States. Mm-hmm. There's a limit of how many uh, of those uh, uh, green cards can come in at any uh, during any one year, uh, and uh, it uh, definitely has to create jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a program that we, as Commerce Secretary or as Ambassador, did not really promote because it's been a long-standing policy of America. Uh, that legislation, that program, is now under review by the Congress, and there are many people who want to make some changes to make sure that the the half a million dollar mark of uh, investment, might, for instance, would be raised to maybe eight hundred thousand dollars, and must truly be. Uh, used in low-income, economically distressed areas. Um, and if, not, it's, if it's not an economically distressed area, then the minimum investment up until now was a million dollars. Maybe that would then be raised to uh, a higher number. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it's, it's, it has created jobs. 
Uh, and it's money that uh, the Chinese people want to bring to America because they also want a better lifestyle and a better future. Mm-hmm. So you're a, a uniquely American leader. A, uh, a, is it a second or third generation? Well, it's uh, hard to define. I'm first generation born in the United States. So okay. My grandfather came to the United States to work as a servant for a family in the state capital in exchange for English lessons. And then he went back to China and had a family. But then he came back to the United States to work and would send money back to the family. And eventually he went back to China and brought the whole family over. So my dad was also born in China. Ah, But then he served in the United States Army during World War II as part of the Normandy invasion. Mm -hmm. And after World War II was over, he went back to China and met my mom. And they got married and he brought her over. And so all five kids in the family were born here in, in the United States, Seattle, Washington. But even even your experience yourself, you didn't learn to speak English till five years old, right? I basically learned English when I went to kindergarten. But yep. then, uh, then I also had some experiences growing up as a Chinese American at a time in which you know, teachers and everybody in society was trying to say, you know, you, we were the melting pot <laughs> and we had to lose your cultural uh, ethnic identity and assimilate. 100% into American culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, that was a painful period growing up, being tugged and pulled by my parents, trying to instill Chinese culture and, and language into me. And uh, the kids, because of the influence of school and the teachers, resisting and almost running away from our, our ethnic culture. Were those forces the ones that made it so your, I think the spelling of your name is uh, rather anglicized. Was that on purpose because of that? Or? No, that's, that's just a... a, a peculiarities and anomalies of the immigration officer when you're coming into the United States. I mean, some people spell lock uh, L-O-K or L-O-C-K or L-O-C-K-E, just as you have so many different spellings for the the name Ng. You know, Mm -hmm. it's N-G or it's I-N-G or it's Mm E-N-G. Wong could be W-A-N-G or H-U-A-N-G or W-O-N-G. So in our case, the, the Chinese sound, the Cantonese sound of lock is lock. And so the immigration officer wrote down L-O-C-K, and then for some of our relatives, and different immigration officer wrote down L-O-C-K-E. You were the first uh, Asian-American governor in mainland, uh, in the continental United States. Uh, you know, as I said before, first Chinese-American uh, ambassador. You have a number of these firsts in your pocket, and I imagine you're frequently asked about them. Do you feel like that, in some ways, it... Uh, it takes the focus off of the credibility of your accomplishments by talking about something which is not your, you know, specific accomplishments. Well, no, I'm I'm very very proud uh, to be the first Asian American governor in on the mainland uh, uh, and uh, the first Chinese American governor in U.S. history. Mm-hmm. I'm also very very proud to be the first Chinese American ambassador to China. And like I said, my father would have been most proud to see his son returning to his homeland his ancestral homeland as a representative of the president and the U.S. government and the American people. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm proud of of those first, those distinctions, but I'm also proud of what I've been able to accomplish in each of those positions, whether as governor, transforming state government, uh, focusing on education, uh, increasing jobs by uh, more than 200,000 despite two national recessions, uh, a country leader in welfare reform. It's very easy to reduce welfare roles by making it very hard for people to qualify, but all you're doing is increasing the ranks of poverty. We dramatically reduced welfare roles by 
helping people get into jobs. And then even after they left public assistance, helping them get into another job and a better job and ultimately a career. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, just making government very, very efficient and responsive, cutting wait times down at the Department of Motor Vehicles uh, to renew your driver's license from one hour down to 10 minutes. Uh, And we did the same thing in China in terms of speeding up the visa processes so that more Chinese could come to America to visit and to learn about America or to Mm -hmm. buy things made in America. Uh, to even uh, streamlining the, the Commerce Department. So mm-hmm. I'm very proud of what we've been able to do. And, um, but I, I recognize that um, I, my political career has also been made possible by other trailblazers, people who helped break the glass ceiling. And I really feel that people of color um, and, and, and others who are first in their fields can also uh, make it easier for others to follow by doing the best job they can mm-hmm. by being highly respected, by being as effective as they can mm-hmm. so that uh, there's less stigma or even less, you know, questions about, oh, you know, you're a person of color. I mean, so that that question it, it doesn't even come up anymore mm-hmm. uh, and that people just assume it and take it for granted. Just as we have people of color and major corporations in academia, high positions in academia, the arts, finance, government, um, and sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was speaking with my uh, very good friend who is a second generation uh, Chinese American, and he mentioned that uh, when he was a kid, he was told by both his parents and his grandparents that no matter what, there will always be some people who see him as a foreigner. I'm curious from your perspective, does that reflect any of your experience? Um, one, and two, what was it like for you to be representing both the state of Washington and the whole country to China um, and know that there were some people out there who didn't quite find you to be the same as them? I, I think for, for many ethnic groups that have very different physical characteristics that don't, I mean, have black hair, yellow skin, Mm-hmm. Um, brown eyes, and uh, you know we're not like the typical Caucasian. Um, and whether you're African American or you're um, Asian American, you'll always be different from mainstream America. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there there will be, in the eyes of some, uh, the view that we're not truly American and that we're always different. Um, and uh, that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate. Uh, but I am thoroughly American, thoroughly, thoroughly American, but I also am proud of my Chinese ancestry and Mm -hmm. cultural heritage. Um, And uh, I think it has given me greater sensitivity, especially my, our immigrant history as a family, Mm -hmm. greater appreciation for what America stands for and that we really are a land of immigrants, whether first generation or 10th generation. And I've tried to bring that immigrant experience to, uh, and sensitivity to my roles as state legislator and then ultimately governor. Mm-hmm. Now, when I was in China, because I was the first Chinese American, and um, the Chinese, many of the Chinese people expected me to take the side of China on U.S.-China issues. And uh, the fact that I don't speak Mandarin, um, speak a little bit of Cantonese, which is, is as far as the Chinese are concerned, or at least you know most of China is concerned, that's like a foreign language. Uh, unless you're in southern China. Um, But they expected me to take the position of the Chinese people and the Chinese government in U.S.-China relations, and the fact that when they realized that I did not speak Mandarin, uh, 
it was a clear signal to them. And in some ways, it was a blessing that I didn't speak Mandarin. It was a, a recognition of, on their part that, oh, he really represents America. Mm-hmm. And I represent the president and the American people mm-hmm. and the American government. But I think that given my Chinese-American culture and background gave me a little bit more understanding of Chinese systems and thought and culture and could help uh, bring that and could bring that to bear on um, my recommendations and my observations and my representation of the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Ambassador Gary Locke, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. Really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Matt. HKS PolicyCast is produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard, as well as Ellen Clegg and Laura Colarusso at the Boston Globe. And to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter, at PolicyCast.